So uh, just to remind you guys, or if you haven't been here with us, we have entered into a series on Advent called uh, The Season of Awe and Wonder. And, you know, the, the premise is that this season is one in which there is, there is a lot of uh, awe and wonder surrounding this season. It's a time that's different than any other time of year, even for people who maybe don't believe in God or uh, just kind of view this season in a secular way. There's something about Christmas that is kind of different than any other season, right? Uh, where there's this childlike joy, where it's okay to be kind of naive and uncynical, when it's okay to give gifts and receive gifts, when we can get together with family, when we can do this kind of decoration stuff. And it's all something that we actually look forward to in a weird way, right? Like there are Christmas songs. I listen to them, you know, in my car. And I even sing them, you know, I sing along with them in my car. And it's not really like weird. Like I don't really do that with a lot of other songs anymore. Um, you know, maybe worship songs, if I'm listening, you know, I'll, I'll kind of sing along. But Christmas songs, even even non-Christian, you know, Christmas is just about, it's just, you know, jingle bells or something. And I'm like, oh, it's it's fun. Like, it gives me some sense of of joy. It gives me some sense of um, childlike wonder when I'm associated with it. And um, we kind of talked about that last week. And however, uh, in this season, there's also a lot of tension because while there's that spark of nostalgia, while there's that feeling kind of that it's fun and it's happy, um, alongside that, for many of us, there's also this feeling of, um, you know, sadness, right? There's also, there also can be this feeling that things are not as they should be, and that's a normal thing because any time that our hope, any time our excitement is amped up, Right? Anytime our ideals get built up in our minds, we tend to compare it to what actually is in our lives. And oftentimes, what actually is doesn't live up to kind of the hope and the excitement and the things that we wish could be. So on the one hand, you know, we're, we're celebrating, we're, we're doing gifts, you know, we're doing like decorations, we're planning stuff, parties, we get together with family, um, and we're doing all that stuff, and it's, it's fun, and it's exciting. And then on the other side of it, though, there is always that reminder of what isn't. You know, maybe things aren't exactly the way that they should be. Maybe some people are missing. Maybe there are relationships that we've lost. Maybe there's people that we've lost. And it evokes in us a certain awareness of the disparity between kind of the joy of the season but then also something in us, there's this sense of things aren't right. You know, that, that weariness and holiday blues, kind of it becomes prevalent in this season. And uh, so what we're going to look at today is how God offers comfort. How God offers comfort to those of us who may feel wearied, which is something I think that's particularly heightened in this season, we're going to look at this um, passage in Isaiah 40 and how God speaks to this. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to uh, the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, we're actually going to read the whole chapter, some 31 verses. Uh, it's, you know, it's a big chunk of scripture to go through on a Sunday. But um, 
you know, I'm really hoping that God will press his word on us. Isaiah 40 is like one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. It's one of those chapters where if you, if you look at a commentary, like that's the kind of, that's, how, that's what they say in the intro, right? Like this is one of the greatest chapters in scripture, you know, up there with like Romans 8. And there, you know, there are these certain chapters of the Bible. And so I'm really hoping that um, the Holy Spirit will kind of impress upon us uh, how God offers comfort to his people who are, who are wearied. So this is uh, Isaiah 40. We're going to start in verse 1, and we'll take it in, in three sections. First, uh, we'll go 1 through 11. And this is God's word, and it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Let's read on. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. So how does God speak to his people who are wearied? Now, uh, giving a little bit of context for Isaiah 40 Isaiah, the the whole book of Isaiah is about really two things. It's about judgment and hope. Now, uh, in the time of Isaiah, basically the, the, you know, Isaiah is in the southern kingdom of Judah. This is a time when Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of Israel. There's the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is really a bad time. The northern kingdom is being overrun by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom of Judah sees this, and they're basically scared that this is going to happen. Um, Isaiah is called by God to prophesy to his people. Essentially, that judgment is coming. And, you know, if you look at Isaiah 6, the call of Isaiah, it's, it's kind of this beautiful picture of Isaiah's transport into the throne room of God, and he's called by God, and God says, you're going to prophesy to these people that this is what's going to happen. Judgment is coming, but they're not going to listen to you. Right, because God is doing this this purifying work. He's gonna he's gonna basically chop down this tree. He uses this metal. He's gonna chop down this tree, and he's gonna purify what's le- like the stump that's left, and then he's gonna regrow his people. And it, basically, that's what happens. So as I, Isaiah is a lot of like Isaiah one. These are you don't have to look. You don't have to turn there. I'll read some stuff to you. This is Isaiah. Basically, how Isaiah starts: a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. So this isn't like the kind of flowery stuff, you know, that you, that, that you could find in Scripture. Sometimes, you know, it's not the kind of stuff that you, 
you put on a mug or a t-shirt, right? Like, ah, you know, sinful nation, right? Like, that's not usually the kind of stuff that we tend to focus on, right? It says, they have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged, right? Later on, it says, this is Isaiah 111, uh, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, right? So he's kind of like, I'm sick of your sacrifices, you know, I have, I've had enough of burnt offerings of ram and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs of goats. When you come and appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? So he's saying, all your worship is like trash to me because right now you are a people that is in complete rebellion. So it's, it's a lot of judgment. It's a lot of this kind of judgment that Isaiah declares. Um, this is in verse 15. He says, when you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So this is God telling his own people, like, I'm sick of even hearing your prayers. Because right now you are, you are a people that is in such rebellion, right? And there's such injustice in your land, and you've turned to idolatry, and you've turned away from me, and you've done all of these things. And so Isaiah's just, his message is just judgments coming judgment's coming and if you read 39 chapters of isaiah it's a lot of that it's a lot of judgments coming you fools like what are you doing why are you trusting in these alliances you know and these other kings and all this kind of stuff because that's what they keep doing and yet there are these snippets of hope it's like oh but somewhere down the line you know isaiah 7 someone's gonna come and fix all this gonna be born of a virgin isaiah 9 you know a child will be born like Something's, uh, he's going to be a king. Government's going to be on his shoulder. So there are these little glimpses. Isaiah 39 ends with a prediction that Jerusalem will fall before Babylon. And then about 100 years later, that prediction comes true. So Judah completely falls. And then that's where we are in Isaiah 40, where God starts to, uh, something weird happens. It, he's, it's kind of, he's, all of a sudden, Isaiah is talking about post-exile. So this is hundreds of years after his life. And he's talking about what is, what's going to happen, the kind of the, the hope that God has, right? So this is really a wearied people. This is a people who've gone through a lot of stuff, not only because, you know, they've gone through like tough circumstances, but all throughout the process, God was telling them, this isn't just random, Right? Like, like, this isn't happening even before it happened. God didn't say, oh, you're just unlucky. This is misfortune. No, he's saying, I'm doing this on purpose because this is judgment. Right? And he gives them a chance. Like when Isaiah is preaching, it's hundreds of years before it happened. So he's giving them a chance to turn to repent, but they don't. And so now they're facing the consequences of their own unrepentance. Now that, coupled with, you know, like if you go through something bad, uh, it's tough sometimes, right? It can be very wearying. You know, if you, have, if you are in the midst of difficult circumstances, that's a family thing, that's some kind of relational thing. You know, it's work. It's something going on in your life. It's wearying, right? It makes you tired. But if along with that, you know that the reason you're going through tough things is because it's your fault, right? Like, like God is exposing something. Like the reason you are so dissatisfied, the reason that these relationships have gone this way, the reason that you can't, you keep leaving your job or you keep leaving the, uh, certain people 
or there's something broken, you know, in your family or in your life, the reason God reveals some judgment, like it's because of this sin in your life. That's really tough to deal with, right? It it can become very wearying. And so what God does here in chapter 40 is he reminds them. So how does he he comfort his wearied people? He reminds them that he is ultimately about grace, right? That's our... That's the first thing that we see here in Isaiah 40. He reminds them, he says, ultimately, yes, there's been this judgment, but really what I'm about is grace. I want to show you this grace. And this judgment has been a necessary process, but ultimately what I want to bring you to is grace. And this is incredibly important, I think, for us to understand because, you know, sometimes things happen in our lives that, that we can start to we can start to doubt whether God is really gracious. I think when we go through hard stuff, if you're a believer, right, you believe in God, you believe that God is real, you believe in, in Jesus, when, when bad stuff starts to happen, you usually don't doubt God's existence. Right? It's not, you don't think, oh, maybe God's not real or maybe God doesn't exist. What you start to doubt is whether God loves you. Like, does God really love me? Does he really care for me? Like, why is this happening? Why does this keep happening? Why am I going through this situation right now? Like, why am I going through this? And sometimes when God reveals something, like, here's the reason you're going through it, because you have this in your heart. There's something here. Oh, that can be really hard. It can be devastating to us. Because we can feel like, man, God, you you don't love me. Maybe we feel sometimes you can't love me because I'm, I'm messed up. Like I'm so deeply flawed that, God, you just, like, can you even love me? And, and what he does in this first section, right, he points out and he says, like, first of all, he starts and he says, comfort, comfort my people. He's saying, look, this, like, I want you guys to have comfort. I'm going to bring you this comfort. Speak tenderly. He says the warfare, this is the beginning part, but the warfare has ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So he's going to pay back double the grace. And then, and then there's this in verse, in verse 3. Um, make straight the path. And he says, make straight. Uh, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain shall be made low. He's saying everything that's happening in the world, all the kind of there's people up there, there's people down here. He's saying, I'm going to level it all. It's going to all, everyone who's high up, you know, who is arrogant, they're going to be brought down. And everyone who is, who is, who is low and who is humble, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring them up. So he's saying, I, I'm going to do this. And he talks about here, he contrasts kind of uh, us, all flesh, man, you know, people, and the word of God, that we are fleeting. We're like, a, we're like a flower. We're like the grass. We fade away. But the word of God stands forever. I'll, I'll come back to this in a second. And then he, here at the end of this section, he says, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. 
right? So kind of he's, he's, he's showing how strong God is, right? Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He rewards those. And then right immediately after verse 11, he says, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. He's saying God is powerful. God is mighty. God is strong. And yet the way God interacts with us is like a shepherd with his flock, right? He like holds them to his bosom. That's how he cares for and loves his people. Now, when we're, when we're wearied, I think the temptation is this. When we're wearied because of the circumstances of our lives, when we're wearied even because God is revealing things about, when he's exposing us. Uh, the temptation is this, to, to victimize ourselves, to blame others, to overgeneralize, and to make assumptions. This is what we tend to do, right? We say, oh, man, why me, right? I'm the only, I must be the only one going through the this, this circumstance that I'm going through. And then we blame others. We say, oh, it's his fault or her fault or their fault. And then we overgeneralize. We say, everything must be bad everywhere. And then we make a ton of assumptions. We just start assuming things about people. It's like, oh, he must think this. She must think that. Right, so we come in, you, you, you think that, you come into a situation, it's your work, you think, why me? I'm the only one at this you know, entire company doing my job and everyone else is incompetent. Right? And you say, it's his fault, it's her fault, it's my boss's fault, it's my employee's fault, you know, it's all these other people's fault. It's not my fault, but it's everyone else's fault. And then we say, this whole place is just like a terrible, this is a ruin. Right? And then we make all these assumptions about everyone. And then we think our solution is, I got to leave. I got to leave this company, go to a new company. Right? My family's a mess. Well, it's my parents' fault because they raised me wrong. It's my kid's fault. He's bothering me so much. It's my husband's fault or my wife's fault, right? Because they're not loving me enough. And then it's all my, it's everyone at my church's fault also, by the way, because they're not loving me enough. And these people aren't doing that. And they're not doing this. And you know what God could do, right? I make this mistake. Uh, in my own marriage often, right? Like, boom, you'll tell me something, and she'll say she has some, she thinks some things, and she has some fears and doubts, right? And so what I do is I say, okay, let's go through this, right? Well, you're thinking this about this. Here's what you think about work. Let's actually analyze it. Let's talk about it. Is it, is it true? Like, are you being fair to what you're assuming about this or that? And we could break down every single, you know, thing that she's thinking and go through it one by one and, like, address it, right? And, I'm, and, and God does do that sometimes. Something like, he doesn't exactly do that, but sometimes he does similar things. But what I found in marriage is that that usually doesn't work. It's usually bad and leads to a fight, and then we don't, um, it just doesn't help at all. What God does, and, and what I've actually found, what I've learned uh, is also better in marriage, is to just say something like, I hear you. All I could say is, like, I love you. You know, we're going to get through it. Whatever it is, we'll figure it out. And... You know, it's just, we're just, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out. But I know that, you know, no matter what, we are going to be together in this. And no matter what, God's going to be with us. And usually, that's like way better. (laughs) You know, there is like so much more assurance and confidence when we do that. 
And that, this is what God does. Like, he knows we're wearied. He says, I see you in that situation. And I could go into your situation, and I could say, hey, here, do this, take this job, go here, talk to that person, and then make this right, and then here's a plan, and you, could, you can do this plan. But instead, what he says is, I love you. Like, do you know how much, do you know much I care about you? Do you know that, yes, I've brought you through this judgment, but the purpose is my grace? Do you know that I want to pour out my grace on you? Can I just say, if you feel that about God, if you get wearied, and, and sometimes we can get fatalistic about it, right? Like, what's the point? What's the point of doing this stuff? Like, what's the point of going to church or reading the Bible or praying or worshiping? Like, what is the point? Is there really a difference? Does it really make a difference? And God's saying, like, I want you to know. I want you to know that I care about you. My, my grace can still reach you if you'll open your heart. Right? Like, if you're open to me, if you turn to me, I can still speak to you. I can still pour out my love to you. That can still assure you and comfort you. So how can we face our own weariness, um, I think the first thing we see is we can remember that God is ultimately gracious. Right? That, um, when he talks about preparing the path, uh, that, that's quoted, of course, in Matthew 3. It says, For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He's talking about John the Baptist. This is Jesus. He's talking about John the Baptist. And he's saying, the one who's going to level everything, the one who's going to bring down the mountains and bring up the valleys, that's me. That's what Jesus is saying. saying that's me. Because all the ground at the, at the foot of the cross is level. Right? Everyone before God is the same in need, in desperate need of rescue, of salvation. And he's saying, that's my plan. Don't you see? That's the plan. Grace to pour out on you the grace that is shown in Jesus on the cross. That's the plan. And he points them to that. Now he goes on. He's pointed them to his grace. Now he will point them to his, his infinite glory. I, I love this, this uh, section of this chapter. Verse 12, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighted the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? He says, who's, who's like God in this? Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who's marked off the heavens? You know, it's crazy. Like, um, I, was, uh, I, was, I was with a group of friends recently, and we were talking about the ocean. And we were just talking about um, how crazy the ocean is, right? Like, and, and one's like a surfer, and, you know, he's, he talked about, like, some of his incidents where he would, where he, like, almost died, Right? And, th and that's kind of like anyone who does ocean stuff, 
right? I don't. I'm not, I'm not much of an ocean person. But, you know, people who surf and stuff like that, like, they all have these kind of stories where they almost dive, right? And then one, <laughs> like, one person was telling a story about his friend who went to the beach one time and two kids were, like, on some far uh, kind of rock playing and they, they, they fell into the ocean, the water, and the current, they were kind of too far out, and so the current was pushing them out, like pushing them out, you know, into just the ocean, right? And so he sees this, and he's like, oh, shoot, like somebody has to go do something, and the lifeguards kind of aren't, aren't coming or around. So he goes in himself, and he goes in out to the ocean, and he's, he's swimming, and when he gets out there, there's two kids. When he gets out there, he realizes that the current is really strong. So one of the kids, he kind of like, he, you know, he realized he can't, he can't swim with both of them back. So he pushes one of the kids kind of just towards the, you know, try to get him past the, the current, right? The, the kind of the pull. And he does. And, and that kid, you know, I think he was kind of the older kid. And he goes back. So he's, he can make it back. And then he's with the other kid. And he realizes the kid's not going to make it, first of all. Like, he can't push it. He can't, he's not going to be able to swim on his own. And secondly, he can't make it back with the kid. So he's kind of stuck out there with the kid. Right now, a little bit later, a lifeguard comes. So a lifeguard comes, and uh, he takes the kid, and he's going back. And the, uh, and the guy's like saying, you know, he's, he's an adult man, right? So he's like saying, oh, I need help too because I'm not going to make it back. And the lifeguard says, no, no, you're fine. Like, you can make it back. And he's like, no, I'm not going to make it back, right? And he says, no, you're fine. You're going to make it back. And the lifeguard just leaves with the kid. Okay, but what he realizes is the reason the lifeguard said that is because the lifeguard is not going to make it back with both of them. So he has to get the kid back, and basically the man has to just survive out here until they can get help, right? So he's, he, he leaves, and then another lifeguard comes out, and that lifeguard <laughs> is like, so the guy is like over there, right, in the water, and the other lifeguard is here, and he, can't, he doesn't go to him because he says, I can't, I can't, um, I'm not going to be able to bring you back, right? So he's, he's telling him, like, I can't go past this because the current is too strong. And so if I go, like, we're both going to ju- just drown. So he says, you have to come to me. Right? He says, you have to come to me from, like, over there to here. And the guy's, like, exhausted. He's like, I can't. There's no way I'm going to make it. But he says, no, look, you have to come to me. If you don't do it, you're going to die. And then, like, the, the, the current is coming, right? He's like, you have to ride this wave in. And then he says this. He goes, you have one chance. Can you imagine? I was, I'm listening to this story. I'm like, what? I'm like, can you imagine you're out there and you're just, and, and the lifeguard, the guy who's supposed to rescue comes and he waits here. He's like, hey, you got to come to me. And you have one chance. This is for your life. Now, you know, praise God, he made it, right? On that wave, he just gave all of his, he just like flailed his arms and he made it to the lifeguard and then the lifeguard took him back in. But the reason I bring that up is, like, that's the ocean. That's the, that's the ocean, man. Like, the ocean is scary. Even with all of our modern technology and all the things that we have. And he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? But the ocean is nothing to God. He measures it with this. He, he can hold the ocean in his hands. It says he has marked off the heavens with a span. When the Bible talks about the heavens, it's talking about space. You know, all of 
the, <laughs> the furthest that man has ever been from earth is four point, oh, I'm sorry, is the far side of the moon that Apollo, you know, Apollo 13 was on the, the far side of the moon. That's, that's the furthest we've ever been. The nearest star is, uh, you know, outside of our solar system, Alpha Centauri. It's 4.3 light years away. It says it would take, if Apollo 13 was to go there, it would take 114,000 years to go to the closest star. The closest star. And the observable universe, 4.3 light years, the closest star. The observable universe, so the, you know, the universe, we can't observe the whole thing. But what we can observe so far is 46 billion light years. It's not, you, can't, you can't fathom it, right? Like you're trying to do math in your head, but you don't even get how ridiculous that is. It, takes it would take 114,000 years to go to the closest star, which is four light years away, and the whole universe that we can see is 46 billion light years. And it says he has marked off the heavens with a span. That means the, the, his hand, his hand breath. That's how great the glory of God is. Because behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. The nations are a drop in the bucket. The nations are dust on the scales. Do you know what that means? Like when you balance scales? You know, like a balancing scale when there's something on one side and something on the other side? The nations are dust. They don't count. They don't move. They don't move the scale one way or the other. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. There's this thing about the cedars of Lebanon, like the tree. You know, if you ever read the Bible and you're like, the cedars of Lebanon, what the heck is that? It's just because Lebanon had these crazy trees, right, basically. And he's saying all of Lebanon would not suffice for fuel for God. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? An idol. A craftsman, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. He says, he says you're going to compare God to an idol? An idol is something that a person who has no money spends on and it can't do anything. That's what an idol is. It's, it's, it's foolish to compare an idol to God. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out 
their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? He's saying, I created all of this. Right? Things that we could wonder at, could marvel at. The ocean, the universe, the nations. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I've created all of this and I'm holding it in place. So he points to his own grace and he points to his own glory. Let me just say this. When we, when we bore of the glory of God, it's, it's a sign that we know him so little, we fail to recognize our own ignorance. Like if you think, if you've ever read the Bible, right, some, some part of the Bible, let's say yesterday you know, morning, you read Matthew you know, 3 or something. And then today, I'm preaching on Matthew 3. And then you think, like, I know this already. I just read it yesterday. Then I think you fail to recognize something about the depth of the glory of God. Right? Like something's missing there. If you could, has anybody ever rewatched a show before? Like an episode that you've already seen? Like, you know, The Office or something, a show that's already over, and then you just pull up an old episode, and then you watch it, and then you find it entertaining, you find it funny, right? If we could do that (laughs) for a show, but not find the same appeal in the Word of God, while the glory of God far exceeds the glory of the show. I, I love The Office, by the way. I've, I've rewatched, you know, episodes and stuff. Like, I, sure, that's cool. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that's so, that's so bad. Oh, why, why would you ever do that? No, I'm trying to say if you think that's glorious, but then you miss the glory of the word of God, then something is wrong. There is a, a gap between who the Bible says God is and between what you think God is in your head. And I don't say that to accuse you or to say like, oh, you totally don't get. No, I'm saying it to say there's so much more of the glory of God that you're missing out on. There is so much joy to be beheld. There's so much delight to be enjoyed. There is so much power there. There is so much significance there. There's so much weight there. In God, in the glory of God, and even just thinking about something a little bit more deeply, when the Bible says that God is, can hold the oceans in his hand, the next time you see the water, like, would you think differently about the glory of God? The next time you'd get on a plane? The next time you would see a picture of space? The next time you would interact in a relationship? Or you drive a car, or you go to work, would you think differently knowing that God had created all of it? 
There's this poem. Do you guys know this poem, Ozymandias? It's a famous, famous poem. They use it in, I think they used it in some TV shows and things too. But um, there's this poem. And it's basically, I've only, I only kept the, the second part of it. Um, it's about a, a, a traveler, you know, who came across basically a statue, a statue that's really just uh, legs, Right, so it's it's basically the the remnants of a grand statue that only the legs are left, you know, the trunk of the legs, and then everything else is kind of just scattered, right, on the ground. And he says, and on the pedestal, these words appear. So these are the this is the inscription that was there. Uh, my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So, not to get all, like, English lit on you, but um, basically the poem is about, it's, it's, it's irony, right? It's, it's this great irony that there is a statue of a man who declares himself to be great, and yet the statue itself is in ruins because no man can be great forever. Right? It is the illustration of the glory of man fading, None of us can defeat time. So you can say, if you want, look on my works, ye mighty in despair. And maybe at some point, you may even have a claim to say something like that, but it will all come to nothing. Yet the glory of God remains forever. So our glory is so fleeting, right? And yet, We spend so much of our lives seeking it, a glory that will certainly fade. Contrastingly, God's glory is infinite. It will last forever. Not only that, but it will be ever-increasing to us. You will never think, I think less of God today than I did yesterday. Never. So long as you deepen in the glory of God, it will always be greater. Forever, even into heaven. Even as we go and reside with God forever, for all of eternity, we will always, every single day, think more of God than the day we did before. We will enjoy him more than the day we did before. We will love him more and be loved by him more. At least we will feel the sense that we are loved by him more than the day we did, than we did the day before. And that's how crazy God's glory is. Now, while um, I could I could I could talk about this forever, but <laughs> let me just get to the end of the passage here. Okay, this is um, verse twenty-seven. It says, "I'm sorry, verse twenty-eight. It should be, uh, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the Creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint." And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So remember that God is ultimately about his grace. Remember that God's glory is infinite. And here, what he encourages his people is remember that God's grace and glory strengthen 
the weary, right? He doesn't go one by one against everything that they say. He says, he says, look at me. Have you not known? Have you not heard? You aren't able to put a formula on God or put him in a box or a cage. You can't measure him completely. You can't understand him completely. He, he doesn't get tired. He doesn't get weary. But he gives power to those who do. Right? That's us. We do get tired. We do get weary. Right? We are susceptible. It says even youths, right? Even youths shall faint and be weary. Even young people right, who seem like they have in, uh, endless energy, right, even, even the kids, you know, at church, right, who seem like, oh, they could run forever. It's like, no, they crash at some point, right? At some point, they run out of energy, and then they go to sleep because everybody gets tired. But God's purpose in this, in revealing his glory and his grace, is not so that we will navel gaze, right, not so that we will be sad about ourselves. It's so that we will be strengthened and encouraged. It's so that we can get up. So we can run. So we can stand for him. So we can declare for him. So we can go forth for him. So this is not this whole thing, right? And sometimes when we hear these things about God and God's pointing to his own glory, we could think, we could take it as a rebuke, right? Like, oh, well, what's wrong with me? Because I don't see him that way. And I don't, why don't I do these things? And why don't, no, but that's not God's, that's not the point here. He's saying the reason I'm pointing you to me is so that you won't just Look at yourself and be stuck in self-pity. There is a, there is a, you know, there's kind of a cultural narrative now that sorrow is more authentic than joy, right? That to be sad and to be broken is to be, that's like to be real, you know? And um, there's good reason for this, I think, because we live in a broken world you know, of course, the effects of sin. Last week, we looked at Genesis 3, right? And that, those effects of sin, they do, they do kind of permeate all of, our, all of our existence, right? And so we tend to, I think our hearts tend to resonate with sad things, right? Like think of every Disney movie you've ever seen, right? And if I, if I say a movie, um, certain movies, and I ask you, like, well, what's the moment that sticks with you? Like, what's the scene, you know, that you think of? If I were to say, like, um, that, that kind of, hit you, that, that you emotionally kind of like resonate with that moment, right? And if I was to say like the Lion King, like, okay, what do you think of? Like, what is the emotionally resonant moment? Like, you don't think of like Hakuna Matata, right? Like, you don't think of like, yeah, they're like playing. I remember they're singing this song and that was the moment, right? That's when I was like really engaged in the story. No, right? The moment you think of is when Mufasa dies. Spoiler alert. Sorry if you haven't seen Lion King. Who hasn't seen Lion King? You know, uh, it's, it's coming out again, right? And, uh, you know, if you, if that's what you think of, right? Because it's like, oh, he, you know, it kind of comes out of nowhere. He dies, and then you're like, you're like, what? Like, first, you're like, this is a Disney movie. <laughs> like, why is he, why is he? And then, and then Simba goes up to him, right? And he's like, he's like, come on, Dad. Like, get up. You're like, oh, well, <laughs> you know, you start, you start doing one of these, like, whew. Let me get some. Let me get some popcorn, right? Like you know, you start you start trying to do something else. He's like, he's like, come on, we gotta go home, right? Like a child discovering his father is dead, probably learning about what death is. That's like, oh my gosh, right? If I say up, what do you think about? 
I think about a, a, a stinking intro montage, like a two-minute animated montage. I didn't know that an animated montage plus, you know, Michael Giacchino's music could, could wreck me so badly, right? Like, it's just like, what's going on? Like, you, you live their whole lives. You know, Carl and Ellie, you're going through the whole thing. You're like, oh, this is so fun. Like, they're going on adventures. And then all of a sudden, you're like, what? Where's, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Again. Why? Like, why, Pixar, why are you doing this to me? Right, like, like Toy Story 3, man. <laughs> I'm getting, cho- getting choked up right now thinking about it, guys. Like, why? Why does Andy have to leave his toys behind? What in the world? Like, and there's something about the, the sadness, right? There's something about the sorrow and the grief that's so cathartic, isn't it? You resonate with you're like, oh, yeah. Like, you never think about the happy ending of a movie at the end when the new, what, whatever. I don't even remember how Lion King ends. How does it end? He's the new king? I don't know. And then there's the, the sunshine and stuff. Like, I don't even, I can't even picture it in my head. But the part where Mufasa's dead and, and Simba's like, like hitting, you know, like, like doing this bit. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I remember it exactly. In my, he bites his ear. You know, he's trying to like, pull, I remember exactly the pictures. Because that's, that's, that is, and you're laughing because you remember it, right? You're like, yeah, that is what happens. That's exactly, I promise you, I haven't even seen the movie in like 10 years. Like, and so we think, yeah, that's real. That's more real. That's more real. That's kind of just how life is, is supposed to be. It's just supposed to be like this, this brokenness, you know, this utter brokenness all the time. Look at this. It's not brokenness. Right, right. The, the whole thing, like, the point of this isn't to lead them to just utter brokenness where you're just always sad. Right now, he's saying, he's saying, hey, I know that you're weary. I know that it's tough. I know you've been through this judgment. Right, but the purpose of this judgment is not to break us, to become some kind of irreparable wreck. It is to break our self-reliance. It is to break our arrogance. Where we are constantly saying, I got this, God. Like, I got it under control. It is to break our trust in false gods and weak idols. To stop saying, marriage, you're the answer. Job, you're the answer. Money, you're the answer. Friends, you're the answer. Reputation, you're the answer. To stop continuously relying on such things. To say, entertainment, you're the answer. My new hobby, my new sport, my new TV show, you are the answer. You will bring me up out of this. He's No, that God does want to break. He wants to break that constant pattern. If you feel like you are constantly in a cycle of brokenness, then that's the part that God wants to break. He wants to say, yes, those idols are weak. That hope is weak. That joy is false. That narrative is wrong. He does it so that we can see his grace for the rescue and salvation that it is in Jesus, that we would appreciate it, that we would think when we gather here, this is a holy moment where we are in worship of God, where we hear his word, when every time he wants us to know that every time we pray, he can hear us. 
We can see Jesus, the King of glory, for who he is, that he is greater, that he is better, that he is stronger, that he is more powerful than we could ever imagine him to be, and he is greater and stronger and more powerful than you have ever imagined anything to be. So that we would give him the whole of ourselves. Not just a piece, not just a time slot or a part, not dipping our toe in his glory, but immersing ourselves fully in the totality of him. That's, that's, that's why he does it. Real quick, you know, application. Enjoy the grace of God today. Enjoy the grace of God today. And you know, last week we talked about appreciating God's grace throughout salvation history and even in your life, right? And what I would say is in this season, particularly in Advent, enjoy that grace today. There's so much to celebrate in this season. Like Sam said, you know, when he was, he was leading and he was saying, you know, community and family and gifts and, you know, all these, it can pull us away, right? Like taken in the wrong way. But if we appreciate the grace of God in it, if we say, man, Like, thank you, God, that I have family. Thank you that I have friends. Thank you that I can celebrate, that I can eat, that I can give gifts, that I can receive gifts. Thank you that I have this this time, you know, to be with people who are imperfect just like I am and who can receive the grace of God. And though I'm imperfect, I can impart the grace of God to them just as they can to me. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for that. Enjoy that. And finally, I'd say, um, enjoy God's glory. Enjoy the glory of God in this season. It's everywhere, right? I mean, people who don't even know who Jesus is got a little nativity scene, you know, on their tree, right? That's, that's the glory of God. That's the, glo- that's the glory of God that spills out beyond even his own people, you know, to all of the world. And so appreciate and enjoy that glory. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you overwhelm us, God, with your glory and your grace. We can be, God, at times a stubborn people. We can be at times a people that refuses, God, that refuses you, that refuses your offer of grace, your compassionate love, God, that refuses to see you for who you are and that persists in chasing after weak idols, God, that persists in elevating lesser glories. But we thank you, God, that time and again, patient and waiting for us that time and again you speak to us who you are and time and again God when we confess and we repent and we turn to you you receive us and you love us and you build in our hearts greater joy and life and hope God may that be what we celebrate this season may all of the Christmas traditions and all of the things that we will do in this season. Even in even in our weariness, God, even in our in our brokenness, would it turn us 
to enjoy and appreciate you. Uh, we thank you so much and we love you in Jesus' name we pray.